Church, if you could please open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. Genesis, chapter 18. We're going to continue working through this book, looking not only now at creation, but how God is bringing about a certain purpose in creation, how he is redeeming his people who have been lost in their sin. We're going to be in Genesis 18 through Genesis 25, 18 this morning. Before we look at some passages here, I want to start with this phrase. I'm going to just say the first half, and I'm going to see if anybody is brave enough, maybe we can all together if we know it, to finish this for me. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Hopefully I'm not that old guy now that the kids are like, huh, what is that? Okay. You can't do the time, don't do the crime. This line, I believe, originated from a TV show, I think back in the 70s, the mid-70s, an old detective show. It's been repeated a lot since then on cartoons, in movies, and it's usually employed when someone comes to this realization, I have a serious penalty to pay. And then the response is, well, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. It's usually too late when we hear this. What sobers us up in these moments is the time that we have to pay to cover the crime we've committed. And now suddenly we realize the seriousness of the crime because of the penalty that has to be paid. We don't realize sometimes how serious of a situation we find ourselves in until we begin to see the consequences or the penalty of our actions. That's what we're going to see this morning. If you're taking notes, the main idea this morning that we're going to see in God's Word is the extremity of God's justice reveals the extremity of our sin. The extremity of God's justice reveals the extremity of our sin. We're continuing to trace God's promise from Genesis 3.15 through the rest of Genesis, through the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Last week, we began with Abraham, and this week, we will begin this transition from Abraham into Isaac, the child of promise. The covenant has been promised, ratified, verified, and now we will continue to watch it unfold. We're going to read this morning together from Genesis 18, verse 20 through 33. 20 through 33. I would invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's Word, if you're physically able. If not, it's okay. Just as a physical posture reminding us of the heaviness of the words that we are about to read. Genesis chapter 18. I'll start in 20 and I'll go through 33. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. 
Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Pray with me, church. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired the words that we just read, would you now speak them into our heart powerfully? that we might be further transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. As we move into chapter 18, God confirms Isaac's birth to Abraham and Sarah. These three men show up at Abraham's tent, and he invites them to eat and to talk. Come to find out these three men are actually God and two angels of the Lord. God reaffirms Isaac's birth, and Sarah laughs it off. Well, later we find out that these angels are heading towards Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy them. Abraham, knowing that Lot is there, pleads with the Lord to spare the city if any righteous are found. We just read that a moment ago. When the angels go down, they rescue Lot, his wife, and his two daughters who flee the city. And in the process, Lot's wife looks back and turns to a pillar of of salt and she dies. Against the angel's instructions, she disobeys, but Lot and his daughters escape. Then in chapter 20 of Genesis, we go back to Abraham, who tricks Abimelech, king of Gerar, just like he did to the Egyptians last week. Only this time, he's not asked to leave, but he's allowed to stay there in the promised land. We get to chapter 21. Isaac is born. And this is what we've been building up to the entire time, the fulfillment of this promise. Only the story doesn't end here in chapter 21. We get about seven verses, and then the story continues. Sin still reigns. Relationships are still broken. For instance, we see Ishmael laughing at Isaac, suggests, suggesting that he's mocking Isaac and the family. And so he and Hagar are sent away, and they almost die of thirst in the desert. God rescues them and takes care of them. Then there's this dispute between Abraham and Abimelech concerning a well that Abraham dug. It was seized by Abimelech's servants. Abraham came to Abimelech and said, well, hey, what's going on? And they make this treaty there. The curse of the fall is still in full effect. But then we come to chapter 22, where it looks like we see the ultimate purpose of Isaac. It wasn't his birth, but perhaps it was his death. Abraham is instructed to bind Isaac, his son, to offer him 
on an altar as a burnt offering, and so he does. And so it seems like the promised offering wasn't just meant to be born, but to die. Only he doesn't die. God stops Abraham and provides a substitute. It was a demonstration of Abraham's faith in God, and God reaffirms the promise yet again. Genesis 22, 17 through 18, God says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so the struggle continues. In chapter 23, Sarah dies. Abraham purchases some land from the Hittites and buries her there in the promised land. Abraham's getting very old at this point. He gets one of his servants to travel to his homeland and to retrieve a wife for his son, Isaac. Not among the sinful people there in Canaan, but from among his people. So Rebekah is brought back and she and Isaac become husband and wife. And then Abraham dies at 175 years of age. He's buried with Sarah in the promised land. And so the promise, though it is unfulfilled, is still alive. As we look at our passages this morning, there is a tension that we notice between the wickedness of sin and the promise of God. This tension really exists throughout all of Scripture. As we see that God is holy and just and righteous, that we are sinful, rebellious. But then we see the love of God, and we wonder, how is this tension able to be resolved? Any casual reader this morning looking at the questions in the chapters here might ask, where is the justice here? We see Abraham confirm that God is a just God, but where is it? Where's the justice when a city is allowed to rape and abuse anyone who travels there? Or when Lot offers up his daughters as substitute victims? Where's the justice when the whole city is wiped clean in judgment? Where's the justice when Lot's daughters essentially drug their father so that they can sleep with him to preserve their family line? Not once, but twice. Where's the justice when Abraham sins in the exact same way against his wife, giving her over essentially to this king Abimelech? Where's the justice when Abraham is told to kill his own son and bind him and put him on an altar? Where's the justice when both Sarah and Abraham die after years of trusting the promise of God that will undo the curse? Where's the justice when Hagar and Ishmael are cast out to die in the wilderness? What I want to propose to you this morning is that God's justice, rather than being questionable in these passages, is actually on display in four ways. We see God's justice in God's judgment against sin, a sacrifice for sin, the consequences of sin, and our deliverance through sin. And we will look at these one at a time. So first, God's judgment against sin. We read in Genesis 18, 20 through 33, 
We saw here a decision by God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, to destroy an entire uh, civilization. There's an outcry against it in verse 20. And we see this phrase that this outcry is great and their sin is very grave. The Hebrew word here for outcry is very similar to Genesis chapter 4. When God says that Abel's blood cries out from the ground to him. In that case, it was cold-blooded murder. Well, what's the sin in this case? There are some who suggest that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is a sin of inhospitality. There are a number of other interpretations given as well. Most of these interpretations ignore what is plainly on display here in the text. Let's read along together, starting in Genesis 19, chapter 1, and let the text speak. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot back into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. What is clearly on display here is the sin of homosexuality. It's becoming increasingly controversial in our culture today to say something like that. But we have to affirm what the scriptures teach. Now certainly what we see here is more than homosexuality. But it is certainly not anything less than that. This is about as drastic of a reversal of God's created order as you can get. Instead of one man and one woman uniting themselves together for life, to create life, what we see is utter perversion for enjoyment at any expense. And this perversion has affected Lot. He offers up his daughters to these men. It's affected his wife. We see later that she looks back longingly at the city as it's being destroyed against instruction. We see it in his daughters who later drug their father and sleep with him. We see it in his sons-in-law who right after this, Lot goes to them and warns them and they think he's just joking. 
When Abraham pled with the Lord, seemingly walking him back from 50 to 45 to 40, all the way down to 10, it's almost as though Abraham imagined that there might be a hint of righteousness left in the city. Presumably in his nephew Lot and his family. But then the picture we see is no. Abraham's pleading doesn't beg for the righteousness of the city. It reveals to us the unrighteousness of the city. Not even ten righteous. And I would propose to you this morning, not even one. Not even Lot. Genesis 19.16 says this. He lingered. He lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out. When asked to leave, Lot couldn't even bring himself to go. So the Lord, his angels, grab them and lead them out of the city, the Lord being merciful. We read later in the New Testament of Lot's righteousness, but it is not a righteousness of the self, but a declared righteousness. We see here that his acts certainly are not righteous. And Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But it's not just that we do bad. Sin is more than just I made a mistake. Sin is that we knowingly reject God every day of our lives. That we make light of sin. We make light of God's commands. Well, this isn't that big of a deal. We kind of have a list in our minds of respectable sins. And it's, it's not that big of a deal. Like Romans 1.32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And do you know in this passage what the such things are that are deserving of death? Yes, he mentions homosexuality. He describes it there in Romans 1. But Paul also gives another list. Covetousness, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, haughtiness, boastfulness, foolishness. The seriousness of these sins is not in the harm that it does to others, and it's not in the maliciousness that's required to commit them. The seriousness of these sins is in the fact that God says, don't do it. We know he says, don't do it, and we do it anyway, and then we make light of it. If my son, if I tell him, Gabriel, do not touch. I just last night wiped the fridge clean. We've got a stainless steel fridge, and it gets these water stains and everything on it. So we got this little cleaner. You spray on it. You wipe it. And if, I, if you get done, it looks good. And if my kids are walking by, and they've got, like, nasty goldfish fingers. Anybody else struggle with this at your house? Or is it just me? 
nasty goldfish fingers. He's coming by, and I see his hand going to the fridge. At the end of the day, is there anything gravely morally wrong with him touching the fridge with his dirty fingers? Not really. But if I say, Gabriel, wait, look, don't touch that fridge. And then if he does this, hand to the fridge. I love Jesus, but I'm coming alive at this point. I feel my anger stirring in me. And you might think, Garrett, he just touched the fridge. No, he did way more than that. He heard my instruction and he said, don't. I said, don't. He said, I'm doing it anyway and does it. There is no respectable sin. It is all vile rebellion against God. In our condemnation, we prove that we deserve condemnation and that we don't really think it's that bad. It just proves that we are just as worthy of condemnation as any other. God cannot and will not let that level of rebellion go. Why? Because he is just. God is just. We see it here in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we see it elsewhere in our passage and then later in Scripture. Here's the second way we see God's justice in a sacrifice for sin. If you'll look at Genesis 22, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 for us. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham left the wood, or took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
In this well-known passage, we see that God is testing Abraham in verse 1. The word for test here isn't necessarily a test as in, let's see if, he, if he's good enough. Let's see if he passes the test. Rather, it's the same idea communicated in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, where he refers to the tested genuineness of your faith. The word test here is a drawing out and a refining of what is already present. In the same way that when I worked at Sonic, if we got a large bill, we had a little marker that we kept. You mark the bill. If it shows up one color, it's genuine. If it shows up a different color, it's fake. The marker doesn't do anything to the quality of the bill. It's either already genuine or fake. The marker reveals that to us. And in the same way, Abraham is being tested by the Lord. God is revealing and refining Abraham's faith. But he's doing a lot more than this. God is revealing what the covenantal promise would ultimately entail. You see, here again, when we are most tempted to question God's justice, we actually see it more fully confirmed. The truth of the matter is, Isaac deserved to die. So did Abraham. So do every one of us. We all deserve to die. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But God didn't intend for Isaac to die. He wanted Isaac to be bound. He wanted Isaac to be laid upon the altar. And he wanted it to get right to the moment of sacrifice. All so that he could say, stop. Take the boy off. Here's the substitute. God's purpose the whole time was to show us that a sacrifice for sin is a substitute. If Isaac had never been bound on the altar to be killed, the significance of a substitutionary sacrifice would not have been so powerful. But now we see a very clear picture. Isaac should have died, but he didn't. God removes Isaac and then provides this ram who is placed on the altar and killed instead. The animal died in Isaac's place. God's justice means that forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness is not free. I've heard the question sometimes, maybe you've heard it. Well, if God is God, why can't he just forgive everyone? Why doesn't he just do it this way? Isn't it interesting to you that God paid such a high price for our forgiveness? Why do you think it is he did that? He didn't do it for no reason. He didn't just decide, you know, I think I want to kill the second member of the Trinity today. It's because forgiveness comes at a cost. And that cost is paid by Jesus Christ for everyone who calls upon him. 
we see the justice of God in the crucifixion. God didn't just say, okay, I forgive you freely. He says, I forgive you, but I'm just. So I will take your punishment and I will place it upon myself. I will pay the price for your forgiveness. Not Isaac. Take him off. I will provide for you. For God to just forgive at no cost would be unjust. God has ensured that every sin for every sinner who turns to him is paid for in full. Abraham's words, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, were far, far more profound than Abraham ever knew. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus' sacrifice proves that even though God forgives sinners, he is still just. Before we move on, consider forgiveness in your own life. Maybe you've got someone that you are struggling to forgive right now. Maybe you've got a group of people that you're struggling to forgive Maybe it's a past event that's taken place. Maybe it's something right now that's fresh and the wounds just hurt still. We often find it difficult to forgive. Worldly forgiveness makes the offending party pay the price of reconciliation. But godly forgiveness absorbs the cost personally so that the other party doesn't have to pay. Now, that does not mean that there won't be consequences. We're about to see that in a moment. But it means that if we hope to be a forgiving people, it is going to cost us. The reason that we usually don't forgive is because we don't want to pay the cost. We want the offending party to pay the cost. I don't want to forgive you. You owe me for your error. I won't pay my pride. I won't pay my time. I won't pay my trust. I'm not paying the cost. If we want to be forgiving like our Savior, it will cost us just like it cost Him. The only reason that Christians can find themselves paying the cost is because someone has first paid a higher cost for us. You cannot forgive like this if you have not known God's forgiveness. Here's the third way we see God's justice this morning. The consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. Flip back now to Genesis 19. Look with me at what the angels told Lot before they fled. Here in verse 17, 19:17. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So there's the instruction. Now go down to verse 25. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities. And what grew on the ground? But Lot's wife behind him looked back. 
and she became a pillar of salt. This is a consequence. Though they were explicitly instructed not to look back, Lot's wife looked back and she was destroyed. Look with me now at Genesis 19, starting in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. And he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is a consequence of sin. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah affected Lot's daughters in an unimaginable way. Flip forward to Genesis 21. Look with me starting here in verse 8. Isaac is born, and we see in verse 8, the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was displeasing, very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son Look down to verse 14. Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Consequences of sin. We see later in our passages, Sarah's death, a consequence of sin. Abraham's death, a consequence of sin. Forgiveness for sin does not mean that all consequences are removed. In fact, it's the consequences of sin that teach us, yet again, that God is just. Though we don't like consequences, consequences are right. They are good. And they serve very important purposes. The consequences that we face remind us, even when we've been forgiven, that sin is still destructive. It is still, still destructive. We can tend to make two serious errors when it comes to consequences for sin. One, we assume that forgiveness protects us from consequences. And that's false. In fact, this reveals our warped sense of what justice truly is. Consequences remind us that there is a cost to be paid for sin, even if I didn't have to pay it. You may think, well, wait, you are paying for it. 
You're paying for it with the consequence. That may be true sometimes, but not typically. A consequence is an effect of something. Payment for a wrong done is one effect, but sin usually brings with it many more. Think about the marriage where a spouse is unfaithful. The effects it has on each spouse, on the third party, on the children, on your extended families. Think about all the careless words we speak to others, the effects they have on those who hear. The casual observer, our relationships, or our trust in one another, maybe our reputation in the community. Think about betrayal or deceit or theft or substance abuse. Each of these have effects. And being forgiven of any number of these doesn't negate the effect. You can be forgiven and still have to suffer through the consequences of what's taken place. Consequences are a powerful motivation for holiness. They are good. So the first error is assuming that forgiveness protects us from all consequences. The second error is ignoring and downplaying consequences. To forgive and protect others or self from consequences and to try to live as if they don't exist. It's a grave error. To downplay the consequences of sin is to ignore its destructive reality. And when we ignore consequences, what we're really communicating is it's not really that bad. It's not really that bad. Look at our country. In a time where so many are ignoring consequences in the name of love, what are we seeing? Lawlessness increasing. The hearts of many growing cold. Does this sound familiar? The Bible warns us this will happen. In part, it is because we are ignoring and downplaying the importance of consequence. Relationships aren't improving, violence is not decreasing, and society is not getting better. As much as it hurts, it is just when we suffer consequences for sin, even if we're forgiven for it. And we do ourselves and those we love a disservice by acting as if they shouldn't exist. Love and justice come together to embrace consequence. Without consequence, we cannot have both love and justice. Here's the fourth way we see in our passages this morning God's justice. Number four, our deliverance through sin. Our deliverance through sin. In most of the passages we just read concerning consequences, there is another pattern, deliverance. Though Lot's daughters were corrupted, their family survived. Though Hagar and Ishmael were sent away, God protected them. Though it seemed like the promise wouldn't be fulfilled in Isaac, God continued to deliver his people. Abraham is slowly acquiring land in the promised land. He purchased land from the Hittites to bury Sarah in the promised land. When he betrayed Sarah to Abimelech, Abimelech did not cast him out like the Egyptian pharaoh did. He says, stay in the land and dwell in the promised land. 
Abraham builds a well and is acquiring land in the promised land. And then finally in Genesis 24, God guides Abraham's servant to find a wife for Isaac among Abraham's people so that the promised line might continue. Look briefly with me at Genesis 24, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 24, 26 through 27. Abraham's servant believes that he has found Isaac's wife. And in verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Even in the midst of sin and consequences, God is just to deliver us. Listen, not because we deserve it, but because God keeps his promises. We don't deserve deliverance. We deserve consequence. And God gives us consequences, but then he delivers us through those consequences. Maybe this morning you feel like you're in a hopeless situation. You're there maybe because of your own mistakes or sin. You're suffering consequences that feel like it's just too much to bear. There is good news for the Christian here. God keeps his promises. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God will deliver you through your sin. If you're not a Christian this morning, everything that I'm saying to you is very bad news. It is not good. Not yet, anyways. God keeps his promises. And he has promised that there will be a day when he judges all of mankind. This morning, we've just gotten a small glimpse of God's justice. But on that final day, God's justice will be poured out in full. Every person, hear me, every person who has not been forgiven in Christ Jesus will pay an eternal payment. Eternal suffering and eternal separation from God in a place called hell. It is God's justice. Listen to one more passage of Scripture this morning out of the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 28 through 33. Luke 17, 28 through 33. Here's what Jesus says. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life 
will keep it. God is faithful, and he will keep this promise too. If you seek to preserve your life here, you will lose it. If you were like Lot's wife who looks back, you will lose your life. But if you lose your life, like Lot, not turning back, but running, not because you deserve it, but because God has mercifully pulled you out of that and has set you in a direction after his son. If you were a follower of Jesus, you turn from your sin, you turn away from that life, you call upon the Lord to save you. The Bible gives us a promise. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. If you lose your life, you will find it. If you follow Jesus, Jesus will deliver you. This morning, I believe that there are some in this room who have not done so yet. And I just want to invite you to do so today, right now. To make that decision, I am ready to follow Jesus. I accept God's justice, and I accept my sinfulness. And I am ready to be forgiven, and I'm ready to be cleansed. You can call upon him for mercy right now and give your life to the Lord. I will be available after the church service down front. We're going to have gumbo in just a little bit. I'll be available there. I'll be available here during the week. You can come see me anytime. Church, may we treat sin just as seriously as our just God does. May we remember daily the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. May we not ignore the consequences of our sin, but may we admit with soberness that we deserve them. Use them as motivation for holiness. And may we trust the Lord to deliver us even through our sin, not because we deserve it, but because we are his people and he is faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we face this morning in your word the sobering reality of your justice, we are seeing a larger glimpse, Lord, of the severity of our sin. We see how you are just in your condemnation in that we make light of sin like Lot's son-in-laws, thinking that it's just a joke. But you have reminded us this morning, Lord, that it is because of sin that you sent your son Jesus to die, to suffer to bear your wrath in our place, our sacrificial lamb. Lord, would you stir our hearts every day, reminding us that even in the midst of forgiveness, our sin still has consequences, that we might be motivated towards holiness in our daily lives. And when we stumble and fall short, Lord, which we know that we will do frequently, we thank you, and we ask that you would continue to deliver us through our sin. Not because we deserve it, Lord, but because you are faithful. Help us to trust and to lean into your faithfulness to deliver us. 
Finally, Lord, if there is a soul this morning that does not know you, I pray that you would bring to an utter realization that there is no hope on that final day when we all stand before you in judgment, that there is no hope apart from forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.